Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails, so let's get into it. This first uh, email is from an anonymous patron, identifies as he, him. He says, I am in graduate school in a marriage and family therapy program, and of course, our first mission is understanding ourselves, right? So let me uh, ask you a question. So uh, this is a long email, but I I think it's worth reading. Your description during a recent podcast uh, of when you were talking about borderline behaviors, uh, your description of people with high emotional intuition felt like you were describing me. Others would describe me this way, too. Your analogy of a giant emotional satellite dish is exactly the way I would describe it. There are blind spots, as you describe, some distortions, and it is very difficult to turn down or turn off. So just chiming in here, and I don't remember talking about this specifically, uh, but uh, I've, you know, I can imagine saying something along the lines of, uh, so, I think someone was writing in and they're asking about empaths. You know, there's certain people who identify as their empaths. And they are they self-identify as someone who's very good at picking up other people's emotions. And what I was talking about is there, there's a number of roads to that. But one of the main roads that I've seen is that when you're relationally traumatized in a way, uh, growing up early in life, you learn to cope with that potentially by paying very close attention to other people's emotional states because your ability to game the system in order to get your needs met depends on your ability to notice other people's emotional states, particularly your parents. And so early in life, say one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, you develop um, neuronal uh, connections that are highly perceptive to that um, and are not a chosen um, awareness. You, You don't have any choice in the matter. You don't have to focus on it. It just becomes automatic. And so going on with his email here. Um, I chuckled at your story about a client sensing your tiredness before you processed it yourself. I had a therapist say, I do this sometimes. For some people, this feels like you're reflecting an observation on something that they haven't chosen to share or might not want want to acknowledge. And if you are ahead of their own conscious processing, it can make someone feel vulnerable in an unwanted way. Situations of deception can also be very frustrating. It might be totally benign as a deception, but you feel it in your bones, and the impact on genuine connection is almost tactile. So what he's talking about here is that due to his ability to, or his his self-perceived ability to pick up on other people's emotions, he will pick up on things like small deceptions that for other people, they either don't notice or they don't really care, but to him, he notices it and uh, he... It, it, it's a visceral feeling that's very uncomfortable for him. Uh, the other thing I'll say here is that uh, this anonymous patron seems to be quite sure of himself in terms of his perception of other people. And you know, he does acknowledge that sometimes there are distortions. But I will say that um, in my experience, if I was to do an estimation, I would say that these people tend to be distorted half the time. It's not just like a small – I don't know – this individual, obviously, but I suspect that his uh, gauge in terms of um, the estimation of how often he's correct is actually probably a little uh, generous to him. Uh, I have worked very closely with people with this condition, and I can tell you that I know myself pretty well. Um, I definitely know myself better than other people know me, (laughs) particularly my clients. 
And when a uh, borderline client or someone who has this, you know, emotional satellite dish, so to speak, uh, reflects to me how I feel, you know, I'll give it some thought and often they're wrong. Uh, often it's a projection. It's a it's a um, a worry that they have. You know, like a very common thing that I would see from uh, clients would be that they would say, "Oh, you look tired," and I and I and I hadn't really thought about it up to that point because you know, I don't go around every day thinking about like how tired am I? Do I look tired? Do I feel tired? And most of the time they were wrong. Uh, some of the times I guess they were right, but but a lot of times they were wrong. Um, obviously, you know, me and included with everyone else, we don't always know how we, we're coming across to other people. I'm, I'm very aware of that fact. Um, I don't always know how I'm coming across. You know, people say, oh, you're very intimidating or something. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what was I doing? And and uh, so I'm obviously doing things I'm not aware of. But um, uh, when these sorts of people will comment on how I'm feeling or how I'm doing, um, they're often wrong or they're they're um, not uh, close. Um, like, just to break down the process a little bit, and again, I don't know if this anonymous patron is talking about this, but the client walks into my office, and due to the client's uh, relational traumas and abandonment growing up, he uh, is a little anxious, you know, or there's a little awkwardness as he sits down on my couch. And that he looks up at me, and he and I'm not being uh, overly exuberant. That's just not my style. I usually just sit down and say, "How is your, you know, how's how are things going? How was your week?" Um, and because I'm not giving any overt signs of non-abandonment, the client will get a little bit of anxiety inside of them, and then in their conscious mind. They perceive that as I'm a little distant, and so they'll say, "Oh, are, are you tired?" or "Oh, are you are you feeling okay?" or something like that. When it began with a very justified paranoia about my abandoning them, um, and again, so that's that's their hyper vigilance around that. They were abandoned growing up, or relationally traumatized, and so they. They're very sensitive to any kind of signals that might look like that. That gives them a feeling in their stomach, in their gut, in their heart. And then they process all this very quickly in this you know, split second. And whether they're aware of it or not, the, there's a conscious thought of just like, wait, is he upset at me? Or is something wrong? And But they don't feel comfortable just asking that, like, are you angry at me? Plus, they kind of know it. It's a little strange to to say that without any data, and so uh, what will come out of their mouth is, are "You are you tired? You look tired." Again, I don't know if this anonymous patron suffers from that. It sounds like he recognizes some of that stuff, but um, I just wanted to chime in. Okay, he goes on to say, "All that said, the flip side is a most beautiful gift to feel emotional textures of the world." I wouldn't trade it. For example, I have been at a concert and watched people who have exquisite pitch as they listen to richness of music that I can't hear in the music. Sometimes I feel I get to hear emotions in the same beautiful way. Being around children is the absolute best for this. So just chiming in here. Yeah. So having a big radar dish for emotion, being very attentive to that, 
when you're around, you know, awe. And, and actually, to extend this, when people uh, with this, you know, uh, emotional dish due to a need when they were growing up experience love with another person, it can be very, very intense. Uh, for these people, not always, but for them, when they fall in love, especially with someone who also has a very uh, big dish, they uh, the love that they feel because there's this feedback loop. You know, you're you're looking at uh, someone and you have those feelings of longing and love and passion and desire and interest and obsession. And then that person is looking at you in your eyes and, and they're picking up on your passion and love for them and they have love and passion for you. And then that pumps up your love and passion for them and interest and, and you're just staring into each other's eyes and you just want to be with each other all the time. And uh, it now I'm describing love in general, but for people with big dishes, if you get two of them together, you know, it's it's – it's a glorious thing, you know. It's it it in those moments the dish is only positive. He goes on to say, after lots of therapy, the question still remains: Why did this develop, and what is the trauma? I have always identified with trauma survivors and often prefer their company. We walk and quack like the same kind of duck, but after lots of therapy work, we can't pin down the duck. I have had some deep depressive episodes lasting weeks or months, years of anxiety attacks, ongoing hair pulling, and powerful triggered behaviors around abandonment. I have an amazing therapist and eventually came to the conclusion about this trauma. I describe it as the donut analogy. He and I kept trying to identify what is in the middle of this darkness regarding my supposed trauma. And it seems like we keep getting close. In reality, we are actually uncovering the outline of a hole, like a donut. I have two theories on this trauma. One is around emotional neglect of some variety from my parents. There is no overt history, which I know about, but emotional attentiveness is hard to assess. The second theory is that I was born with this dish and had no emotional operating system or supports in childhood to handle the relatively unfiltered emotion of others, particularly adults. Maybe it's a combination of those theories. Maybe it's neither. Is this a thing? Have you ever seen a cause of trauma like this? Can you talk more about – can you talk more of what you have seen in people with this dish? Yeah, good questions, and you're wise to you know have these questions and to not know the answer. I don't know the answer either for you, and uh, no one ever will know the answer because it's unanswerable. But – uh, but it's worth exploring, and I'm glad you're in therapy and you're exploring it. And I've worked with people uh, along these lines. So one is is that just because we don't remember the trauma doesn't mean we weren't traumatized. One thing to, uh, that makes it, I think, very clear is most of us don't remember much before the age of four. I actually have a few memories from before I was four, but they're very foggy. It's like a snapshot they're they're not there's not a lot of detail to it and i am not g- convinced that those memories are even real i mean one memory i have when i was i think 2 years old maybe one and a half i'm fairly certain it's real because i remember remembering it when i was 5 6 it's it's one of those memories that 
for whatever reason, it just kind of pops into my head every now and then. And I remember at the age of like six and seven, having more memories of when I was a kid and, and really being quite sure of that memory. But I know memory is malleable enough to know that, you know, who knows. But but anyway, so most of us know that even if we have any memories from back then, we don't remember much. So the uh, the fact that we and during that time is when we really start to develop our main coping styles with attachment injury. And we've all been attachment injured early in life. So we all have to develop ways of coping with that. And uh, it's it's not a mystery that we don't really remember why we developed that. We can only, the donut analogy, as you say, it's just like, well, you can see all these signs pointing towards something that happened when you were young. Now, the other thing here, and you raise a very good other conceptualization is that you were born this way, which is also possible. It there, There's no way for me to demonstrate that. There's no way for science to demonstrate that. But it seems highly likely that some people are born not with necessarily an emotional radar dish, but who are just maybe more interested in other people or the neurons that are involved in, you know, the mirror, we have these, what they call mirror neurons, where when uh, it's complicated and there's a lot of bullshit on the internet about it, but essentially the idea goes is that when we see something, we, we, we recreate it in our head as if we're doing it. So if uh, a very um, s- simple example is, I see a quarterback in football throwing a football. And if I'm really into it and I'm really identifying with it, there are neurons in my mind that are actually mimicking the movement of throwing a football, even though my body isn't actually going through the motions. It's like I, it's like I'm doing half of the actual throwing. You know, half of half of your movement happens in your brain. The other half happens actually with your body. And so, uh, and I'm, I might even, as I'm watching the quarterback throw the football, my my arm might even kind of twitch a little bit because my brain is already, uh, you know, planning out uh, that behavior. This is all unconscious. I, I I don't I don't I don't have to try to do that. <clears throat> this is why when we see other people cry, we might start crying because our neurons are, you know, we're we're very set up we're social creatures so we're very much set up to one of the best ways let me back up so empathy is the ability to feel other people's feelings right it's not it's not the ability to know other people's feelings like oh that looks like sadness to me it's actually the ability the capacity to actually feel other people's feelings there's a lot of definitions of empathy but that's one of them and it's an important uh, mechanism for people to have uh, for for social creatures to have because if it, you know if we're going to get along with each other and we're going to help each other and we're you know when your child is sad uh, it's much faster for me to know that that person is sad and rush and thus rush to their aid if I actually have neurons that are set up to to produce feelings inside of me that are reflective of the emotion that I see. So I see my infant crying and automatically this jolt of pain and sadness and fear, you know, rushes through my brain and my body. Uh, 
and boom, I, you know, I feel my child's feeling and I'm going to rush to their aid. Whereas if it was just an intellectual observation, like, oh, I think my infant is sad. I think, you know, crying, you know, this distress, it, you know, has the flavor of this. And this is particularly important when it comes to more subtle emotions, you know, like little bits of rejection, little bits of discomfort. We benefit by being able to uh, unconsciously just feel other people's feelings. So it stands to reason, and and these processes are, uh, you know, I'm sure eventually we'll figure this out. We're, you know, getting closer every day, and but we're pretty early in the science. We'll figure out, like, generally speaking for most humans, what set of neuron and the, what set of passages in the brain are actually in connections to the brain are actually related to this process. We already know some of it. Some of it is actually related to the movement center, and some of it's related to the emotional center and the you know limbic system but the the point is is that uh, it's a it's a physical structure in the brain you know the ability to have empathy uh, is a physical structure in the brain is involved in that now uh, some people believe that it's like okay well this this area of the brain is involved in empathy uh, current science kind of refutes those kind of thoughts. It's like, well, your whole brain's kind of involved in a lot of different things, and so it's hard to p- pinpoint. But certain certain areas seem to be more typically involved. Uh, so it stands to reason that some people are born with uh, a more robust uh, uh, empathy neuron uh, structure, and some people are born with less. Uh, we could say that the less people might be more prone to developing psychopathy and antisocial personality. Um, it's it's hard to know. We could only speculate at this point because our science isn't very good. So, it, yeah, it's possible, anonymous patron, that you were just born with a, a greater ability to um, pick up on other people's emotions just because your mirror neurons or your limbic system or, um, you know, whatever – uh, processes are involved in empathy and, and noticing other people's feelings. You're just born with a more robust uh, 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 strength. And so uh, it, it, to extend this disposition and this temperament out to other kinds of things, anyone who, and I always say this, anyone who has hung out with kids, particularly uh, groups of siblings, you will see like, oh, People are born with personality traits. <laughs> I mean, they're not born with traits like, you know, this person is going to be on TV or something, you know, but they're born with like, that kid is more mischievous than other kids. That kid is more mellow. That kid needs time to think before acting. That kid is impulsive. That, you know, and you'll see it at the age of like 12 months. Uh, it's especially if you're given the opportunity with your own kids or, you know, nephews and nieces to track the, their personality throughout their life into adulthood, you will see like, I, you'll see a 30 year old, I've personally seen this. I will see a 30 year old person and have known them when they were born. And I'll be able to track personality traits that they have at 30 back to when they were 12 months old. So it stands to reason that, uh, you could have been born this way, anonymous patron. It's also it also stands to reason that you could have been traumatized in some way. Uh, and what I mean by trauma, you know, it includes the biggies like abuse, but it also includes minor abandonments that wouldn't 
look like trauma even if someone was watching. Like you were uh, left in the crib a little too long or you your parents were going through a tough time or your parents uh, you know had other siblings they had to take care of and there was just a little bit too much abandonment, emotional abandonment, even though you, you can be abandoned even while you're being held by your mother. So your mother is holding you. An infant can have an experience of abandonment if the attunement isn't being given or received in a way that makes the child feel not abandoned. So there could be there could have been an ongoing thing when you were young. Now you're looking back and you're like, I don't see anything. I, you know, and uh, uh, what I'll challenge you is that it's if you've already spent a good amount of time exploring it, because I've gone down this these roads with other clients before. If you've already spent a good amount of time thinking about it and processing it, it's possible that you'll never find an, an answer to these questions that you have. You know, is it disposition? Did it, was I actually abandoned growing up? Was there any traumas? I mean, keep investigating it because you're a therapist and um, it's just helpful to know these things. But it's quite possible. I would give it a 90% chance, given your description, that you'll never find anything uh, that will satisfy your, you know, your questions. And but that's not the point, right? The point is, is like what's going on now? What's going on now is that you have a, a a radar dish for emotion that has pros and cons, which you're aware of, which is great. So you want to try to account for the cons and enhance the pros. You want to uh, work on that kind of thing. Uh, You also have depression from abandonment. You have anxiety. You have these kinds of things. You have hair pulling. And we don't know where that comes from. Uh, So another going back, and you're kind of getting to this, uh, another you know, pretty high possibility for why you are the way that you are is that, and I think you were sort of mentioning this, is that say you were born with a with this disposition of being able to pick up on other people's emotions and the way you came together with your parents just didn't really match very well. Like, let's say you had a parent who uh, allows a lot of emotion to be expressed. You know, they're, they're, they're very expressive with their emotions. Uh, whether it's happy emotions or sad emotions or angry or whatever. And you being very good at picking up those emotions were uh, perhaps more distressed because you noticed the distress of your parents at an early age when a child shouldn't have to know about those sorts of things because it's too much for a child to handle. Whereas your brother, who wasn't born with this uh, tendency in this dish, had the same parents and the same tendencies for emotional expression, but they didn't notice it very, uh, you know, acutely because they didn't have this big radar dish, and they weren't traumatized, so to speak, or affected negatively by that experience. So, getting back to like, you know, what do you do with it? Well, and I think this is what you're doing is like, well, it doesn't really matter where it comes from, and even if you did have more answers, you still wouldn't know where it comes from because there's there's just no way for our current science to answer that question, but. What do you do with it now? How do you cope with it now? How do you, uh, at the very least, for whatever reason, you have an issue with abandonment. How can you repair from those wounds, even if those wounds have only occurred during your later years and not during your childhood? Uh, the healing from a, from abandonment 
doesn't depend on us knowing what happened when we were young. So, and it sounds like you're doing that, which is a great thing. And um, the other thing, last thing I'll say is welcome to the family of marriage and family therapy. <laughs> it always uh, makes me happy to hear people entering the field in general and also entering the field of marriage and family therapy. I love the field of marriage and family therapy. I have, uh, I identify as that. Uh, people sometimes try to get me, I, I, I could also identify as a psychologist, um, but I just I like the field of psychology too, you know, and psychologists are great people too. But I just feel at home with marriage and family therapy. It's it's where I've been teaching for over twenty years. Um, I really love my colleagues at the at the university and um, at conferences. I find that marriage and family therapists are um, easier to get along with than psychologists <laughs> for for me anyway. Um, so welcome to the family. All right. Next question. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron that goes by she and her. I was wondering if you could talk about sadism on the podcast. Both of my parents were abusive, but my mom seemed to take particular delight in watching me suffer and be humiliated. She, was all, she also enjoyed watching others hurt me, like me getting made fun of by other people or having the doctor set my broken arm without any sort of pain relief, even though he offered it. She also liked to watch others abuse me. I am trying to understand what would cause this kind of disorder, and also how this particular kind of abuse would impact the attachment style and complex PTSD differently than someone who experienced a non-sadistic type of abuse. End of email. Well, the first thing I want to say is just how sorry I am that you went through this. I mean, my God, just awful. To go through abuse is awful. But to have your parents, um, particularly your mother, take pleasure, you know, take delight in you being humiliated and harmed and going through pain, like, I mean... It doesn't get any worse than that, honestly. It does not get any worse. I'm so sorry you went through that. Um, You have some questions here. You know, what would cause this kind of behavior? Hard to know. It's been studied for a long time. There are theories, um, lumping them into three different categories. One is is that uh, childhood trauma, right? No, No mystery there. Essentially, through the trauma... It either, you know, just created an anomaly in the neurons of the brain or more likely or sort of more convincing conceptualization is that when you feel powerless and you're abused and mistreated as a child, you have a number of different coping styles available to you. One of which apparently is to identify with the abuser and even wire your brain as such that you actually... Uh, not only are motivated to strike back, but you actually get a lot of pleasure from it, um, sexual or just general pleasure. You know, you take a two-year-old who is being made to feel powerless, uh, more powerless than a two-year-old is supposed to feel. And they, and that, that can happen in a number, number of ways. That could happen through sexual abuse. It could happen through physical abuse. 
but it could also just happen from a feeling of neglect or a f- or maybe the their family is in a very chaotic situation or even they just have a sibling an older sibling who's just a little bit more dominant than they are and the brain is trying to cope with that right the psyche the personality and it's possible that a little bit of a you know a movement in the direction of sadism will actually make their life better and so it's this adaptation to a sense of powerlessness growing up. Um, so that's how trauma or sort of early experiences can, in my book, result in the development of, of sadism. The second theory is biological, right? Um, genetics or anomalous brain development or something. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense that there's a there's a bell curve of sadism. It's always important to look at personality disorders as uh, an exaggeration or a manifestation of, of something that we all have in a particular way. Most of us have a little bit of sadism. It's very normal to have a little bit of to essentially getting pleasure from seeing other people suffer. We all get a little bit of pleasure from seeing our enemies suffer, for example. Now, some of us might have complicated feelings like, well, um, my morals tell me that I don't want to take pleasure in other people's suffering. But it's very normal to get a little bit of pleasure from that. A lot of comedy is from that. A lot of fantasy stories are, you know, we we like it when Darth Vader uh, gets destroyed or the Emperor Palpatine gets his just dessert uh, or when political figures uh, suffer when they're made fun of or when they lose an election or a rival sports team when they do badly. We take pleasure in it. Or a bully at school. If there's a bully at school and the bully like uh, accidentally trips and falls down, we get a little bit of pleasure from that. You know, you laugh, you point, you smile, you rejoice. Well, that's a version of sadism. You know, the taking pleasure in the suffering of others. Now, for most people, they'd be like, well, but, you know, it's people who deserve it. You know, that political figure deserves to suffer because they've made other people suffer. Okay. You know, that's, again, it's, I'm not arguing with that, but you are taking pleasure in the suffering of another human being. Um, and so we all have that now for some people, it seems to get exaggerated. Why is that? Uh, maybe it's childhood trauma. Maybe they're just born that way. Another way of looking at it is that it's biological, but in the sense of evolution. Again, whenever we get, we get into evolutionary psychology, there's a, it's fraught with a lot of pitfalls and pseudoscience. But what I will say is that it's just a speculation that we could have evolved uh, this as a normal variation among the gene pool. So it's possible that for a tribe to survive 200,000 years ago, it was beneficial for a tribe to occasionally produce someone who was on the sadistic spectrum because every tribe needed someone to take pleasure in harming other people. And maybe that person was a very good guard of territory or something. You know, it's hard to know. But uh, it's possible, you know, one of the explanations or conceptualizations of why some people have ADHD, for example, is just this. Uh, it's impossible to know, but it's uh, one of the theories is that, well, um, we evolved as a species 
to have a variation in our uh, the randomness of uh, dispositional uh, bell curve is that five percent, ten percent of people. It's, it benefits if a tribe has 5 or 10% of people with ADHD because they become very focused on certain things. The, the old theory in the 90s was that people with ADHD would be very good hunters. You know, In a hunter-gatherer society, they would be really good hunters but not very good gatherers because as hunters, they focus on things that are very interesting. And they, they're also uh, – ADHD people tend to lack fear of hurting themselves and they tend to be very impulsive. And so when you have a – a wildebeest or a, some kind of large animal that's that could hurt you. Uh, they don't. They're not afraid of it, and they're also they're, they're laser focused on that thing that's moving, and they they try to kill it. You know, for the benefit of the tribe. You know, there's a shit ton of silliness in that. Of we just don't know because we don't have a time machine to go back and, and observe that. But it's one of the theories, and it's possible that sadism is similar to that. Sadism is much rarer than ADHD. Um, you know, I would say it's probably on the order of like 0.1% of humans, maybe even fewer than that, um, have what would rise to the threshold of what we would call sadistic personality disorder. But, um, but anyway, you know, maybe I, I tend to believe that I tend to gravitate towards the conceptualization that some people are born with a disposition in which sadism is possible and then you uh, mistreat them in such a way that it's actually adaptive to them to have their brain wire itself. Because it's not a choice for sadists to enjoy suffering of others. They just do. You know, particularly if when you're looking at people who have, who have sexual sadism, you know, most people not only could not be turned on by the suffering of others, you know, they, they don't get any kind of sexual pleasure from the suffering of others, it would actually turn them off, you know, it would eliminate the possibility of becoming aroused. Now, when we get into BDSM and consensual sadism, then that's a whole other kind of thing, you know, playing with sadism is different than being a sadist. Um, having, involving yourself in BD and being turned on by, you know, say, you have a couple and the husband likes to put hot wax on his wife and that turns him on because it's painful to her and that's sexual sadism. That's very different from actually wanting your wife to be in pain. You know, it's this, it's consensual sadism. So, you know, I think that's important to point out. But anyway, so to answer your question, you know, what would cause sadism and sadistic behavior uh, we don't know, uh, just like we don't know why anything is anything, particularly when it has to do with personality. But generally speaking, um, I think I laid out the conceptualizations that I'm I'm attracted to. Then you go on to say, I'm trying to understand how this particular kind of abuse would impact the attachment style and complex PTSD differently than someone who experienced a non-sadistic type of abuse. Um, it depends. Uh, abuse is so difficult to quantify because it depends on how it's received by the person. So you could have a sadistic parent and be abused and not emerge from childhood with complex PTSD or any significant attachment issue because as a child you just didn't notice it or you didn't interpret it that way or you had enough protective factors. So it's really hard to say. Now, um, uh, the other thing is, is that non-sadistic abuse could be perceived as sadistic. 
So it's just, it has to do with perception and resilience and protective factors and, um, you know, a lot of things like that. Uh, you know, to put a fine point on it, for a three-year-old to have to go to bed early, that three-year-old, you know, say, the, or the earlier than they want to. So for a three-year-old, say, bedtime is at 8 or 7.30 or something. And uh, you're like, okay, it's time to turn off TV. It's time to go to bed. Some three-year-olds will interpret you putting them to bed as a sadistic act. You know, you'll have kids that will walk away from what is a totally something that you've done repeatedly over and over and over again. You know, it's like every night you go to bed at 730. Why is it such a hard time tonight? Like, what's the deal here? For whatever reason, on that day, they just decided to interpret the situation as like you are doing this. You're making them suffer on purpose. You get pleasure from taking them away from their television. You know, kids will believe that. So even the course of normal non-abusive parenting can result in children perceiving uh, you as a as a sadistic, abusive parent. <laughs> There's just no way around it because kids, you know, they don't think straight all the time. Um, but I would imagine, to answer your question, that complex PTSD and other attachment injuries would be more severe if one was abused by a sadistic parent. It just kind of makes sense, right? You know, it's one thing to be abused. It's another thing to see your parents getting pleasure from it. I mean... The trust in other human beings would is damaged by abuse, but it would be damaged in my estimation way more if you if you believe your parents are getting pleasure. You know, it's one thing to see your parents as like, okay, well, dad's in a bad mood or mom's drunk and that's why she abused me last night. Uh, it's another thing to be like, she, my mom wakes up in the morning and makes a plan premeditated to harm me because it's she likes it the way she likes chocolate cake. <laughs> she craves making me suffer and seeing me being humiliated. Like that is going to put a number on your trust of other human beings. Your working model of other people is going to be uh, affected by that. And so, you know, again, I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. It's just so awful to hear about, you know, I've treated people like you, um, I might have even treated people like your mom before and not really known for sure because I didn't have enough information. But there were certainly people that I treated who um, were in that direction. And, yeah, it's just such a tragedy, such a tragedy. Um, you just wish that there was some kind of system for kids. I mean, obviously, Child Protective Service is um, theoretically there to help kids. But you just wish that there would be some way that – science and the government could come together and flag these sorts of people so that maybe they would they wouldn't be allowed to have kids at all right i guess that would be best case scenario uh but you know we don't live in a society that does that kind of thing and who would adjudicate it and you know taking away people's rights like that but um or at the very least let's inter intervening early so that the parent doesn't do that or uh, getting the kid out of the house or I don't know. It just, it's just, it's so sad. Anyway, uh, let's take a break and when we get back, I'll continue reading emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron yet, do so now go to patreon.com, become a patron. It's the way that we know that you like this thing that we're doing. Um, it's also the way that, 
I am able to spend more time on the podcast and away from my regular jobs. If it weren't for you patrons becoming patrons, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast in any kind of quality way. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, I'm currently working through the Attachment Deep Dive series that you made, and I'm hoping for some good insight from you that might help me understand myself better. I'm in therapy again. She seems to be a good fit for me, but it's only been five months and I have major depression and crazy attachment issues, so connecting with anyone is challenging. I have a couple questions for you. I was wondering how likely it is that a person uh, can have borderline personality disorder and or a disorganized attachment style, but not have been abused or traumatized as a child. If the child was exposed to lesser stressors, such as emotional neglect, but got all the other needs met, could they show the same symptoms as those caused by more serious forms of abuse? Um, so just chime in here. Yeah, so... Uh, and I think I was talking, this is sort of overlap was was talking about earlier, uh, coincidentally. Uh, we tend to look at abuse on a spectrum, right? It's like, oh, well, being sexually abused by your father for five years is worse than being, um, you know, occasionally yelled at by your mom. This is a um, false way of, or a wrongheaded way of looking at it. It all depends on how the child receives it, right? Some children are more sensitive than others. Again, as I said earlier, some children have more protective factors. If you know, it's much. If you have, if you have a single parent, you're, you know, you're, uh, one of your parents isn't around, and that single parent is occasionally mildly abusive to you, then that could be more damaging than if you say, were being routinely terrorized by one parent. But you had another parent you could depend on. You had grandparents you could depend on. You had siblings you could depend on. So there's no way to know, based on a description of the experience that someone went through as a child, there's no way to know how severe the reactivity is going to be because it all depends on so many other factors. So you're wondering, like, um, you know, it sounds like, you identify someone who might have borderline and or disorganized attachment style and you're looking back and you're like, I don't really have, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't traumatized or abused. Um, it's very easy or it's very common or it's common enough that I've seen it where people with borderline and disorganized attachment have a really hard time uh, identifying anything in their childhood that was bad. Over time, this this is made easier because uh, there's a lot of um, reasons why we might go into denial about it. There's also uh, subtle ways one can be mistreated that you just think is normal. And upon reflection and maybe outside influence, you realize, oh, I guess that was different than other people went through. Also, you can have wonderfully loving, attentive parents who produce a style of parenting that just does not fit with you. And you experience the difficulties in a very uh, in a way that produces a lot of damage that results in disorganized attachment and borderline. So it's very complicated. The other thing is, as I was talking about earlier, is you don't remember everything you went through, and you can't rely on anyone to tell you what really happened because they might not remember or be in denial about it. So there could have been like a really bad um, six months from the time you were. 18 months to 24 months, you could have had parents who were yelling at each other all the time for whatever reason, overworked for whatever reason, um, depressed for whatever reason, that can, and that 
span of time can absolutely result in borderline and disorganized attachment. You go on to ask, are the children of therapists really more messed up than the average person? What if both parents are therapists? Are they even more messed up? It seems like the kid of therapists would benefit from the parents understanding child raising theories and seeing what results, what results certain parenting styles cause. What have you seen in your experiences? So I don't have the research in front of me and I would have a, I don't know if there is research on this. Maybe there is, but it'd be a hard thing to measure. You know, how do we measure messed up, right? Um, do we measure it by dropout rates? Do we measure it by addiction? Do we measure it by self-reported psychiatric illnesses? Um, you know, what do we, how do we measure issues, right? Um, in my experience, everyone is messed up in some way because none of us can emerge from childhood unscathed. So, um, so, but the question is, you know, are children of therapists more messed up? Yeah, that's a total silly stereotype or myth or something. Um, uh, the answer to that question is, you know, like I said, we just don't know. Maybe they are messed up. Maybe they're not. I can tell you this. I know a lot of therapists. You know, I know hundreds of therapists. And when I think about them, I think, okay, yeah, they know a little bit more about parenting than the average person. They know more about how to manage their emotions better than the average person. But... They're human beings, and when they go home, they have all the same problems of um, disengagement, overreactivity, narcissism, uh, you know, not, list, not allowing other people to influence them, feeling like they know the right way to parent and their spouse might not be the best parent, you know, according to their perception. Um, so there really isn't any, in my estimation, any difference between the raising of a child in a family with a therapist as a parent as opposed to not. Um, again, does it raise the likelihood of the child being more well-adjusted? You know, I'd say probably a slight difference on average, but I know a lot of kids that come from families with therapists and the, um, and they have the same degree of issues as anyone else would. Next question from you, Anonymous Patron. You say, I'm curious, how did you meet Umberto? Uh, as we've talked about in the podcast before, we met doing karaoke. Uh, he was singing, he was also kind of a friend of a friend at this private karaoke party a long time ago. Uh, and then you go on to say, kind of silly, but I have a bit of a crush on you. I felt oddly attracted to you from just he hearing your voice, and I was glad to see once I found your videos that your good looks match your voice. <laughs> anyway, is having a crush some form of transference, transference, or is it actual attraction? I'm not very attractive to men. I tend to get crushes on people pretty easily, which I don't mind too much. Is there a psychological reason for this habit? Is there enough info about people getting crushes to make this pod, to make this a podcast topic? Um, so your questions here is having a crush some form of transference or transference, or is it actual attraction? Well, if you suffer from um, you know, disorganized attachment and or borderline, then ha having a crush on someone like me would be, uh, you know, conceptualized often, particularly by me, as being probably more related to transference. Uh, it also, you know, actual attraction is a real thing. So it's not like that goes out the window in, in certain situations. You, you can absolutely have both 
present at the same time. One meaning that um, for someone who has disorganized attachment and borderline, they uh, desperately need and want some uh, secure attachments. And when we're adults, we tend to look for that within romantic relationships. We tend to frame closeness in romantic relationships, right? And so as you experience a secure attachment, even with a podcaster, then, uh, you know, those feelings are going to come out and and you're, you're going to have feelings for that person. And it, it'll be interpreted and maybe attached to romantic um, sexual kinds of energies, especially if there's a bit, a bit of a spark of actual attraction. Um, and then you say, I tend to have crushes on people. Is there a psychological reason for the habit? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I could speculate, but it would just be a speculation. You know, I do know people who are much more prone to crushes than other people. Um, you know, the I guess if I was to just talk off the top of my head, I would just say, you know, I think some people are just more in tune with, they're more in tune with their crushes and they're more encouraging of them or and or they're more... Uh, expressive about them, you know. It's it's really normal to have crushes for anyone to have crushes on a, you know, someone at work or someone you know or an old friend or maybe even an ex or um, someone in a movie. You know, there's just uh, something about us social creatures that makes us, when we encounter certain people, we just want to have more of them, <laughs> and you know, we're enamored by them, and. You know, that seems to be a universal trait. And, um, you know, some people, I guess, might experience it more. It's possible, but I, I think it more has to do with just acknowledging it and, and encouraging it. And then you ask, is there enough info about people? Yeah. So, you know, um, nothing wrong with crushes. It's totally fine. And it, it, there's also nothing wrong with transference. Um, there's nothing wrong with even encouraging transference. Um, transference can be a wonderful thing, you know, if, if it's with the right person. Because, um, you know, essentially what we're doing is we're transferring our issues and our needs from our parents onto someone else. And through that process, our psyche is attempting to heal. So if you choose a safe and non exploitative person uh, if you transfer on to them then it could be a corrective experience so you know that's what I'll say about that all right let's go on to another email all right this next email is from patron Lucas from Denmark he writes my name is Lucas and I'm a 16 year old boy from Denmark my name is Lucas I live in Denmark how do we support and help friends in distress I am the type of person who wants to help my friends as much as I can with their problems. I have this one specific friend who is really struggling. She has a beginning eating disorder, depression, anxiety, has been bullied for a long time, and thus has very low self-esteem. I expect she is cutting, too. I have gained her trust, but the problem is I don't really know how to help her. I want to try to help her as best I, as I can. Do you have any tips, do's and don'ts, or even sentences to say, which I can use when supporting her? I feel like I am just repeating my own words over and over again. I would love to know any way of helping her process past traumas in a healthy way, even though I know it's risky business for an amateur. What do I need to know when helping her in this way? 
uh, end of email. So first off, I'll say, you know, what a wonderful person you are for um, wanting to help other people. It is uh, a very noble uh, thing you're doing. And, you know, that's just fantastic to hear. Uh, the world needs more people like you, Lucas, from Denmark. The second thing I'll say is that it's not likely that you're going to harm her in any way. The key is, is uh, and so I wouldn't worry too much about that. The key is, is just don't try to be a therapist because you're not. Just be a really, really great friend. Uh, and what that entails is asking her what she wants, you know, what she needs. You know, just um, I, I guess if there's do's and don'ts, like don't go into the interaction with her feeling like you're, it's your job to like tinker with her brain or to fix her or to be, you know, you're not responsible. The chance that the conversations with you are going to cure her in any significant way is very small. So um, what you can do is be a secure attachment for her. So that's a do. Uh, You can be a good friend. So that's another do. Um, You can listen. You can ask her what she wants. You can, um, you know, you can speculate. You could process your own you know, feelings too. Things should be mutual with friends. So you, um, don't have it just be a one-way relationship. Uh, that that can be strange. So make sure that you are present and getting your, no, your own needs met. So that's another do in terms of do's and don'ts. Like think about your needs. You know, you don't want to put yourself in the back burner. That's not fair to you. And, and it's not a very good setup for a, for a friendship either. Um, so, yeah. Uh, try to get her into therapy. Uh, if she's if she has an eating disorder and depression, she's at risk of dying for from suicide or other complications. So, um, getting her into therapy is very important. So, you know, I don't know how you help her with that, but it's just a matter of making suggestions. It's really hard to force someone into therapy or influence them to go to therapy. It's really just up to them. But you know, you can be there to to help and make that suggestion. Um, you say that you feel like you're just repeating your own words over and over again. Uh, well, I don't know what that means exactly. It's possible that, um, you are in a situation where you're like, I want to take this to the next level. I really want to help this person. And again, without knowing your situation, I would suspect that there really isn't an opportunity there because again, you're a friend, you're 16, you're not a therapist, um, and, he, and even if you didn't know what to do, you might not be able to do it. Like for me, for example, I know what to do. I'm a therapist. I am paid to help people with these problems. And when I have a friend that's going through this sort of thing, uh, I know enough through experience to not really attempt to therapize them. Um, I might just give them advice. You know, I might just be like, so, you know, just setting aside a little bit, um, as a friend, I feel like I just want to tell you what I would tell you if I was a therapist. And sometimes, you know, I'll just tell people. But really, you know, that can help a little bit. But really what people are looking for with their friends is, you know, they just want someone to hear them, someone to be with them, someone to hang out with, someone to make them, you know, feel better, someone to make them forget about their troubles. So if you really want to help your friend, you know, focus on that. I I, I wouldn't be thinking about, you know, what do I say? What, what's the, what's the right thing to say? Um, because even if I gave you the things to say as a therapist, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't come out right with you because they're, they would be my words. 
Also, your friend might be like, why are you treating me like I'm a client? You know, I'm, I'm a friend. The other thing is, is if they, if she does want you to treat her like a client, then that's kind of a red flag of like non-reciprocity that can be very problematic for you in your life. And so, you know, that's what I'll say about that. You have another question. Is non-suicidal self-injury related to masochism? I was laying in bed the other day after listening to your podcast on non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI and came to wonder if non-suicidal self-injury and masochism are related in any way. Yeah, so masochism is a general term for the um, the motivation to harm oneself, and it can be very broad, like self-destruction, or it can be very specific, like um, punching oneself in the face or something. And um, are they related? Yeah. Um, one could say that they're the same thing. There's NSSI is much more specific, right? It's non-suicidal self-injury. It's behavioral. It doesn't really propose any kind of potential reason for it, although we do have a lot of theories as to, and a lot of research into why people engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Um, but masochism is an old concept that has been thrown around a lot and used in a lot of different contexts. So that's what I'll say about that. Uh, you have another question here, patron Lucas from Denmark. Coping mechanisms. A few months ago, I was really struggling with stress and social isolation. Uh, chime in here. I'm sorry to hear that. You go on to say, I didn't really know how to cope with it, and that kind of frustrated me. I'm lucky the problems only lasted for a short period, as if they would have lasted for much longer. I prob- And if they lasted for much longer, I probably would have hurt myself. After getting out of the problems, I wanted to make sure I didn't get that feeling of desperation again. So I began searching for a healthy coping mechanism. All I found was doing sports and being creative. These two things um, I hate most in the world. <laughs> um, I wanted to hear your take on this. When I'm down, I can't really handle doing a lot of things and even getting, getting out of bed. Okay, so just to summarize what you're saying here is, you know, it sounds like you went through some, so you said, you know, stress, isolation, maybe depression, maybe suicidal thoughts, and you're out of it now, which is great, but if you ever go back into it, you want to have coping mechanisms in place. And on the internet, your people are like, do sports and be creative, and you're just like, these, I hate doing sports and I hate being creative. So what do I do? Well, um... There's a lot of other things besides playing sports and being creative. Those are certainly two things. There's, you know, there's literally thousands of things one can do. But the key is, is that you understand the, the key to emotional regulation, which is a complicated way of saying um, that you can uh, reduce your suffering emotionally, is to one be aware of your suffering, and not only when it's bad, but also when it's ramping up. You know, if what you went through a while back was like a nine out of 10, what does it feel like to be a two out of 10 or a four out of 10? Getting to know that. And at 16, I would suspect you're not super aware of that yet. Um, I know people who are 36 and 46 that barely understand that. So you could probably do with learning a lot about that uh, because then you'll be able to intervene early instead of waiting till the last minute. Because once you cross a certain line, it's hard to do anything about it. The next thing is you start experimenting. You know, you start experimenting. Does talking with a friend, does listening to music, does having a chocolate treat, does, dare I say, having a Danish, as we call it in the United States, help? Does going to a movie, does 
making sure I get sleep at night? Do video games help? Does reading a book, does a certain, um, you know, song or a certain movie help me? Does whittling, does walking help? Does having a pet help? So it's up to you to figure out what those things are. And any advice I gave would be most likely not really applicable to you because, again, there's thousands of different things that one can do to reduce one's distress. Uh, There are general things that work for a lot of people, like talking about it is one, with uh, someone who, you know, you trust and, and respect and, you know, care about, and that person cares about you. Um. Finding a way to distract yourself, exercise, diet, uh, doing things that, you know, provide some kind of pleasure, reducing stressful things in your life. Like if uh, someone is bullying you, you know, making sure that that doesn't happen again. If schoolwork is very hard, then maybe asking for an accommodation or taking easier classes. Um, You say social isolation you suffer from. Well, you know, what part of your personality that could you work on that will help you to um, open up to other people? Because there's a lot of other people who want friends, too, and would love to be a friend with you. So, um, you know, all the, of the, you know, it, you might be working on that for years and years and years is the point. But with, that's the general guideline that I'll give. But good for you for thinking about that and prioritizing that at such a young age. You'll be better off for it. So uh, just chiming in here without going into another email specifically, I, you know, I get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, this situation with my therapist, I don't really know if it's good or not. I don't know what to do about it. I highly recommend that you join the closed Facebook group, Clients Harmed by Romantic Transfer. Oh, no, sorry. I changed the name of that. (laughs) That's what I used to call it. Clients Harmed by Therapy. So I created a... Uh, Facebook group called Clients Harmed by Therapy. And you it's a closed group, private group. So uh, the only way you can see the content is if you're accepted into the group. And there's a lot of people in this group now. And they, um, you know, people will post like, so I went through the situation with my therapist. Um, what do you think? And there's a lot of good back and forth between listeners to the podcast and others. It's important to share and to, you know, bounce ideas off people and, um, you know, especially with this group because they know probably more than the average person does about this topic and know how to respond. So join that group, Clients Harmed by Therapy Private Group. Uh, If you can't find it, let me know. Um, Email me and I'll be able to send you a link. Um, Because sometimes I I get emails from people asking me questions like, so my therapist did this, my therapist did that, what do I do, how should I see it? And you know, it's it's a really hard question for me to answer. I mean, sometimes I can answer them if I feel like there's a enough of a toehold for me to stand. But most of the time I'm just like, God, you know, I, I have no idea. Without really doing an assessment, I, I wouldn't even begin to know what to say. Um, you know, from the way you're describing it, it sounds pretty awful. But, you know, if I talk to your therapist, I might have a different point of view. The other thing is, is ethically speaking, like it's a bad idea for me to start messing with other people's treatment, right? So uh, it, it's I'm, I'm in a bit of a bind sometimes because uh, I, I don't want to interfere. You know, I don't want to mess things up. And so... Um, 
so anyway, if if you find that I'm not responding to some questions, you know, along those lines, join that Facebook group because maybe they can help you there. All right. This next email is from Nicole. She writes, I have one child, and when he was seven or eight, he was diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar, and ADHD. Um, so just chiming in here, uh, pervasive developmental disorder, we used to call that mental retardation or you know that sort of thing, a developmental disability. And oppositional defiant disorder is a disorder that or a label that we put to kids who are defiant and oppositional in a pathological way, uh, meaning that they don't really gain anything. I mean, every kid is a little bit oppositional, a little bit defiant. Uh, but some kids, um, and when you work with them, you realize like it's, a, it's like they're compulsively oppositional, even when, like I said, it doesn't even serve them well, even when all logic, you know, for, for most kids they reach sort of a limit where it's just like, okay, fine, I'll give in because if I don't, life is going to be bad for me. But some kids, they just have this compulsion. And so people who are labeled with ODD, typically uh, it's just this constant attitude of opposition. It's almost like a personality disorder. And then of course we know what bipolar is. And for a seven or eight year old to be diagnosed with bipolar, Typically, what we're looking at is a child that throws a lot of really um, lengthy, angry tantrums. Um, it's unclear if they actually have bipolar or not, but it, that's usually the label that's applied. You'll have a kid who will go on a rant uh, or a tantrum. You know, kids have tantrums, right? Seven-year-olds, they'll, they'll meltdowns. It's another thing to—but usually there's a, there's a time span, right? Like, you know, 15 minutes— maybe a half an hour uh, or shorter, you know, three minutes. But imagine if you, and I, cause I worked with uh, a seven or eight year old kid who was diagnosed with bipolar and his tantrums would last no joke for 10 hours. His tantrums would, and he would, he would be screaming and crying at the top of his lungs, no joke for 10 hours with nothing would stop him. And so the idea is it's like, he must be having a mood problem. This isn't a choice uh, to have that amount of suffering for that sustained amount of time must have something to do with a mood disorder. And that's, and so sometimes they'll throw bipolar at it, but it doesn't, doesn't typically look like bipolar in adults. And then ADHD, of course, because, you know, it's just a common diagnosis that's given to people. I, I would question given the spectrum of other disorders that this individual actually had ADHD, meaning that they had the brain disorder of executive function. Um, you know, if you have a developmental delay and you're oppositional defiant and you're bipolar, chances are you're going to be a little distracted in the world, right? But who knows? Um, going on with your email. At its worst, his, at its worst, his mental health problems required him to be admitted to inpatient care for for five or six times. His longest stay in the hospital was over three weeks. He also had his education majorly disrupted as he was unable to attend regular school for several several years. Needless to say, this has been very difficult for our family. I'm happy to be able to tell you that he's now almost 16 and has made wonderful improvements thanks to a lot of therapy, medication, interventions at school and home, as well as his very fluffy as well as his very fluffy support cat. <laughs> 
He is attending mainstream high school, participating in activities, and just generally doing a, a great job at being a teenager while also learning to take care of his mental health. I am very proud of all the really hard work he has done. When he was younger, I regularly had people say things to me about him that can only be characterized as just shitty. Strangers, family members, friends, educators, and healthcare workers seemed very comfortable saying things to me like, this is your fault because you don't parent him. You didn't spank him enough. You spanked him too much. This is because he doesn't know Jesus. And, you know, you're putting him on the wrong medication or you're wrong to have put him on medication. When he gained weight from his meds, I had two different pediatricians tell me that I was a bad mom for letting him gain weight. I think the most painful instance was when a mental health worker, I believe she was a psychologist, who assessed him in the emergency room, told me in no uncertain terms that my son was a psychopath and would never be capable of loving anyone and would probably never have a functional life. So I should go home and grieve. He was nine years old at the time. Fast forward to the present, I work in an elementary school with a sizable special education program. I frequently hear people say things about students which, uh, with various issues that are the same kinds of things that people would say to me, and it really pisses me off. I always thought my experience was fairly unique, but now I'm starting to wonder if it wasn't. So here's my question, Kirk. I know you used to work with kids. Do you think that there's a problem with how people relate to parents such as children, and if so... Uh, 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 to relate to parents of such children? And if so, where do you think it comes from? End of email. So the first thing I'll say is, I'm so sorry you went through this. Uh, it's, I mean, the stre- just the stress alone to, to have a kid with special needs like this is tremendous. And then to have society pile on and blame you all the time is, you know, a double tragedy. And... Um, just awful. And yes, it's very common. Uh, your situation was not unique. Even when kids have mild issues, much milder than the issues your child had, parents will hear stuff like this. And I'm glad you're pissed off because it pisses me off too. I get regularly angry at clinicians who, who talk like this. Um, now that I have power, now that I'm a supervisor and an educator and I'm established in the field. I will. I regularly yell at people about this. I mean, I try to restrain myself, but I find it, you were abused. You were abused by a pediatrician. You were abused by that psychologist, or at least you were unethically treated by, I mean, for a psychologist to sit down in an emergency room and assess someone for, you know, probably a short amount of time and determine that your nine-year-old child is eternally a psychopath is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. For a, for a therapist, for a mental health person to believe that they could diagnose someone with a personality disorder such as psychopathy, uh, a nine-year-old, no less, in that amount of time is absurd. The other thing is, is even if you were given 10 hours of assessment, to assess a nine-year-old as being a psychopath is also absurd. We know that, generally speaking, you cannot diagnose children with psychopathy or antisocial. Why? Because children can go through phases that look very much like psychopathy and antisocial or borderline or paranoid or OCD personality disorder, and it's just a phase. You know, their personality isn't, and their selfhood isn't really solidified yet, so you can't really know if they're a psychopath. And there are many documented cases of kids going through phases where 
they will absolutely be sadistic and psychopathic, and then they just grow out of it. Now, it's possible that you can see signs of emerging psychopathy or borderline or histrionic at the age of nine for sure. But you would say that you'd be like, well, I don't know. It's possible, but you know, this, this situation could, could, could go a lot of different ways. The problem is, is, you know, you're asking me why this happens. Well, one of the reasons why it happens is because therapists and everyone gets very concerned. So, you, you know, you, you, you said that, uh, you know, parents, teachers, friends, healthcare workers, strangers, whenever we see a child exhibiting behaviors that are very concerning and clearly everyone is suffering, our anxiety is uh, increased, right? So you're walking through the grocery store, a stranger seeing you struggle with your kid. The strangers are going to get anxious, even if you're not. Um, Especially a healthcare worker who is there to help and solve the problem, they're going to get anxious. Everyone is just going to get very anxious, you know. Uh, if you hooked up everyone to, you know, an EKG machine or some kind of biomarker measurer and you, you know, had them watch some kind of stressful movie and measure their response and then you had them watch, um, you know, some mother struggling with her bipolar nine-year-old in a grocery store, I'm guessing that the second scenario would would have, you know, 10 times as much of a stress response in a human's body. So when we're stressed out, we're not thinking straight. Two, we often look for a solution. Three, our society gives no fucking solution to these problems that makes any sense, right? Society says, um, you know, you got to be harder on kids or you're too hard on your kid um, or uh, your kid doesn't know Jesus <laughs> or, you, you know, it must be your fault. You know, you're not, you're not parenting him right. You got to put your foot down, you know, all this, all this kind of crap. Now, these principles aren't bad principles. They're just like massively missing the mark. It's like saying to someone who, you know, has cancer, um, it's like, oh, well, did you eat your vegetables? You know, you got cancer because you didn't eat your vegetables. It's like, well, eating your vegetables isn't a bad thing. It's probably a good thing to eat your vegetables. But to say that I have cancer because I didn't eat enough vegetables is just so ignorant of reality, right? So for someone to walk up to you or a health care worker to walk up to you and say, the reason why your kid is so oppositional or having such problems with their moods um, is because of blank is, you know, it's, it's, it's similarly ignorant. And the problem is, is our culture, for whatever reason, you know, I could probably speculate, but for whatever reason, most people in our society believe that they know how to parent best. Most people walk around with this notion like they know how to they know the difference between good parenting and bad parenting. Um, you know, most people walk around with this notion of just like, you know, this is how you parent a kid. You need to do this, especially if you've parented kids. Right. Um, everyone has these very entrenched ideas of what's right and what's wrong. But most of the time, their notion is limited in that. They're probably not wrong in what they're right, but they're wrong in what they think is wrong, if that makes any sense. So, for example, one of the things that I do uh, in trying – because I, I, as a family therapist, I am training and supervising a lot of therapists who are working with parents and with kids, uh, families just like yours. And one of the things I got to break them of is their notion that they, that they have sort of figured it out in terms of what the best way to parent is. 
And one of the uh, ways that I do that is I say, um, you know, research shows that uh, using corporal punishment can be a bad thing or a good thing. And, uh, you know, so I get it. I don't know exactly how I laid it out. But essentially what I try to do is I try to create in the group of supervisees and trainees this discussion topic around corporal punishment because everyone has most people have a very firm opinion about corporal punishment <clears throat> in seattle most people particularly white people are heavily against using corporal punishment corporal punishment meaning like spanking you know people white people in seattle in general in my anecdotal experience will say that spanking a child is always wrong it's always abusive then I talk to African-American people in Seattle, and they're like, well, you got to spank your kids sometimes because they need to be put in their place. Again, generalization, but this points to a uh, reality that both are right, <laughs> okay? Um, both styles of parenting can be effective. You can spank your child and have it be effective. You cannot spank your child and have it be effective. You can spank your child and have that be harmful, and you cannot spank your child and have that be harmful. The point is, is what's the overall approach, and how is the child receiving it, and how, how are you attuned, and how are you reacting? Spanking or not spanking is a small detail in that. Uh, so when you when and this is what my experience taught me as a as a family therapist working with so many different families was like. Oh, interesting. That family is doing well with this style. This other family across town is doing a different style, and it's also working. And then I would go to a third house, and I'd be like, oh, that family is using the same style as the previous family, but it's not working with that kid. Um, or they don't know how to deliver it in a way that is best for that child, so they have to adjust this and that. And I learned over time through experience after working with you know hundreds and potentially thousands of families that... There are so many ways to do well, and there are so many ways to fuck it up, and a lot of those ways are the same ways. There are so many ways. There's so many you know, things you can do, especially when you start looking at big groups of people in different cultures. Uh, and the thing I like to tell people, trainees, because they're typically um, white women, uh, it's, you know, the, our, my field is dominated by white women, what I like to say is, because mo and most of them believe that spanking is wrong always, is I say that 99.9% .9 of the planet, uh, you know, estimated, <laughs> believes that spanking is absolutely acceptable, if not your responsibility as a parent. So if you believe that spanking is absolutely wrong, you are in a small minority of human beings on this planet. And so you have a dilemma. You can either believe that you're right and everyone else on the planet is wrong, which is essentially a form of colonialization of, you know, you have the privilege and the power and you're a white person. You got to watch out for that. And you're claiming that, you know, people in Samoa and Korea and China and Africa and the Middle East and Poland and Russia, all these people are wrong because you're white and you're right. You can either believe that or you can accept that there are many different ways to parent a child. You can parent your children without spanking and, and that's fine, but you also have to accept that there are other ways of parenting children. 
The other thing to think about is white kids are not necessarily better adjusted than kids in Samoa and Korea and China and India and Russia and Poland. (laughs) You know, there's just that's another racist thing that a lot of Americans think is like our children are doing better than the children in other regions. Now, how do we measure that? You know, is it true? Um, Doesn't seem doesn't seem like it's true. And when you actually especially when you look at um, certain markers of happiness and anxiety and depression and, you know, eating disorders and whatnot, you'll find that American kids seem to be suffering more than other kids. So something now I'm not saying we need to spank our children and then they won't have an eating disorder. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that um, I'm using the spanking as a stark detail that differentiates uh, for people this notion of colonialization of parenting ideas of uh, the flexibility and the the wide variety of functional parenting approaches. Um, so yeah, it. So I I have to teach family therapists this notion, and and I don't think I actually get. I don't think I'm very successful. I mean, I'm hammering it into their head, and I think I only get through to maybe like five percent of people, because our again our notions of parenting and what's right and wrong are so entrenched in our culture and so entrenched in our personalities that for me to rant and rave about it you know a few times i don't know how much change that i can actually create in the in the people that i'm around and if family therapists have a hard time recognizing this reality then of course random people and pediatricians and uh, educator, you know, teachers, these kinds of people are, are going to have a hard time too, because they're not really given the education and the chance to really understand the broad spectrum of what is possible as, uh, as parenting. You know, I've heard all those things too, you know, um, uh, the main premise is it's your fault as a parent. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard therapists say that, um, again, anecdotally, most therapists believe when there's a child doing something wrong, most therapists believe absolutely 100% the, the parent's fault. Now, you'll hear me talk about how mistreatment can create problems. And I stand behind that statement because it's true. Uh, but when you have a kid that is born with a developmental delay, no matter what you do, things are going to get complicated. At the very least, because they bump up against the school system at some point and realize that they're not like other kids. And that is very distressing to them, which you can imagine, right? Not all, but for many. So that alone is going to create some emotional difficulties. Also, the child will grow physically um, and hormonally, but their ability and their, their maturity will be delayed because that's the nature of delay. Not all aspects of their maturity, but so they could be a 16-year-old, as a body and as a hormone monster, (laughs) but their maturity level is that of say a seven-year-old. So uh, that makes it, that complicates things, right? And um, so, so there's inherent things that can be present, not always for sure, but uh, that are totally independent of your parenting sort of, you know, ability. Um, The other thing, as I always say, is all all parents screw it up. You know, there's no amount of parenting classes you can take that can make a parent um, not screw up at least a good 20% of parenting. People are human beings, and it's just not possible to stay focused, to stay energized, to not let your own personality get involved, to not have blind spots, this kind of thing. 
Um, the other thing is, is even if, uh, you know, some of the damage was caused by a parent, um, it doesn't justify, in my mind, a, a child being abusive back to their parents. You know, it, two wrongs don't make a right is the point. And so, so anyway, there's a lot of different scenarios. You know, certainly there are some kids who are acting out a lot and we can absolutely point the finger at the parents and um, hold them responsible, so to speak, at least in our minds. Um, but there are pl- I can't tell you how many families I would work with where my conclusion was, okay, maybe the parents did a little bit of damage to this child, but this child is going through a very weird phase right now that is um, independent of the quality of the parenting they've been through because they're just so um, out of control. Um, so yeah, um, very common. People are assholes. They, they're super righteous. They're completely ignorant of what it's really like to parent kids like this. Um, I thought of a new phrase as I was reading your email, the grocery store vigilante. You know, these people when you're in the grocery store and uh, you're struggling with your kid or kids and the grocery store vigilante comes up to you and says, you know, you know, you're a terrible parent or um, you got to put your foot down or, uh, you know, you, you can't let them push you around like that or I don't know, whatever the parent says. Uh, the grocery store vigilante is something that I'm guessing you experienced and is um, a, a very unfortunate uh, aspect of our society and probably other societies as well. Uh, again, why? Well, because our culture um, has a lot of really weird notions about parenting. You know, um, most people are most people when they look at a kid who is out of control, most the general population tends to believe that you're not being hard enough on your kid. You know, the whole like um, reality TV show thing with like the boot camps the, that were real popular in the 90s and the zeros. Uh, it's this idea of like you got to scare kids straight. You got to give, you know, put them in front of a drill sergeant and then we'll see how defiant they're going to be. And, you know, kids are complicated. Believe me, I and parenting is complicated. I have worked side by side, like I said, with hundreds, maybe thousands of families with kids like this. And I can tell you that, like, it is a tough nut to crack. Uh, you can get you can get hard on them and you can you know, and I've done that with with families and had limited success. Uh, I've also done like uh, weird things with families and found that they work. And you're like, huh, why did that work? Like um, one of the things that I remember years ago, I was working with a family and the kid was a charming, I don't know, 16, 17 year old. And he was running away from home. He was totally defiant. He, he had crossed that line that some kids cross where they're just like, oh, I get it. You don't have any control over me. <laughs> Uh, there's nothing you can do that can really punish me. You know, when when some kids realize that, then they really go off the deep end because they're just like, you know, you can't stop me from doing anything. And you have to house me because I'm a minor. So you can't even kick me out of the house. And um, so this kid was, um, you know, totally out of control. He was potentially even involved like with terrorism or something like it, it at least you know severe gang activity it was it was very there's a lot of violence there's drug use there were you know guns and knives and tattoos and you know just a lot of nasty stuff and 
the the parents were seemingly very nice people. Now, did the parents make a mistake along the way somewhere? You know, uh, undoubtedly. How much of that is related to the kids' behavior? It's unclear. I mean, by the time I come into the family, I'm always kind of like, well, it's, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, usually I could see something, you know, like if you have a narcissistic parent and you have a kid who is acting like this, then I'm like, oh, okay. But a lot of times I just be like, man, this is this big mystery, you know, like because I would work with another family down the street and the uh, parents would be worse, but the kids would have much milder symptoms, you know, like the kid just had low self-esteem instead of completely out of control behavior. So anyway, I'm working with this family and, you know, the parents are like, how do I get this kid to follow the rules? And we experiment with some things. And then at a certain point, they got some advice that they should, uh, when they're, when curfew is up, you know, at midnight or something, that you just lock the door and you don't let the kid in when the kid gets at home at two in the morning and say that they have to figure out somewhere else to sleep and um, you don't make a big fuss out of it. You don't yell at them. You just say, um, look, curfew's at midnight and I welcome you to come back home before that. But as soon as, you know, the clock strikes 12, I'm going to lock the doors and you can knock on the door all you want, but I'm not coming to the door. And if you continue to do it, I'm going to call the police. So um, again, this is sort of a last ditch effort to regain at least some semblance of control. And usually this has to do with like safety of the family. Cause you know, a lot of the, a lot of these kids would come home with drugs or, um, other, uh, random people and would be high. And, you know, and so the parents are just like, I'm worried that he's going to bring someone home and they're going to like steal everything in the house. <laughs> so I, I don't feel comfortable allowing him to just kind of waltz in at two in the morning because I don't know what he's going to do based on my previous experience. And, and sometimes that would happen. The kids would bring home people and the the friends would steal stuff from the house. And sometimes the kids were actually complicit in that. They'd be like, okay, I'm going to, we're going to go over to my house. You're going to steal my parents' you know, TV and the toaster and you're going to sell it and I'm going to get half the money. Uh, again, uh, I've, heard, I've, I've been in those situations. So they locked him out. And I was like, well, this isn't going to go well because he's so beyond the pale that he's not going to care. You know, he's going to come home at 2 a.m. He's going to knock on the door and you're going to be like, sorry, you're going to have to find somewhere else to sleep. He's going to rejoice. He's going to be like, fine. <laughs> you know, like you think I care about this shit? Like I got I have places to stay. Um, you're letting me stay somewhere else? Like, fine. I'd rather sleep somewhere else. I don't want to come home. So I thought, well, this is probably not going to work. Well, the first night that they did it, he did not like it, and they, they didn't let him back in, and he, I think he slept on a porch or something. And miraculously, after that, he never broke curfew again, at least for the time span I was with them. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing, you know? And it occurred to me that some kids need that kind of strong boundary. Also, it also occurred to me that he still desires the attachment with his parents, you know? He doesn't... He saw that as like, oh, man, they must be really upset at me for them to, like, kick me out of the house. Well, you know, I don't want to be kicked out of the house. I still want to be part of this family. So I guess I got to rethink my decisions, my choices here. Um, again, I, you know, I wouldn't recommend all families do that by any means. But the point is, is that you just don't know what's going to work. And sometimes weird things work. And... If you if you posted that on Facebook, like guess what my you know my kid's out of control, I'm gonna lock him out of the house tonight. 
you're not going to get a lot of support for that. Uh, because again, people have ideas like you can't do that. You know, you gotta you gotta have structure. You know, all this fucking talk about structure, and I'm always um, yelling at my. When I say yell, I mean um, have a talk with my trainees whenever they talk about structure. They're like, oh, you know, I have this one family, and I feel like you know the parents they need more structure. And now it's not it's not necessarily a um, wrong thing to think, and there's there's nothing wrong with quote unquote structure, I guess. But whenever I hear a therapist saying stuff like that, I always assume, and I'm usually right, that the therapist is actually experiencing that countertransference I was talking about earlier, where the therapist is observing the family or hearing about stories, and they're overwhelmed with how chaotic the situation is and how out of control the child seems. And the therapist feels responsible for that, and they don't really know what to do, and so they just resort to their cultural colonialism and they just point a finger at the parent and they say, you have to have structure. I'm going to tell you, you need to stick by your guns and, you know, have stricter rules and have a system of stars and of punishments. Again, it's not a bad thing to do. It's, it's not like it's not going to work, but it misses the overall point here, which is that things are complicated. Um, everyone's anxious. The kid is out of control, clearly. Um, and this might take some time. The the first thing that I'll that I will tell people to do, well, out there, you clinicians, think about this. Like, what do you think the first thing we should do as therapists when um, when we run into situations like this? I'll give you a couple seconds to think about it. One, two. The first thing we do is validate everyone concerned. So you validate the kid for their emotions. You know, so, wow, you know, sounds like you're really upset at the time. You know, that makes sense. You know, to me on some level. And to the parents, you're like, um, I want to validate the fact that you're trying and that you probably feel blamed by people and you probably are blaming yourself on the inside. But I'm here to tell you that um, you're, that that behavior that the child is doing is not your fault. Your child is making a choice. And uh, maybe you made some mistakes in the past, but that doesn't mean like, you know, your kid running away every night is is your fault. And I... And I'm on your side. I'm here to I'm here to work on this with you. And I'm all, I also am here to tell you that in my experience, this is the things I would say. I'm here to tell you that in my experience, sometimes kids go through a phase where they act out in really horrific ways, and it really has nothing to do with the way they were parented. I would just see parents just start crying. You know, they would they were so elated to have someone just finally validate them on some level. Now, do I know these things to be true? Um, are the parents maybe partially to blame? I don't know. It doesn't matter moving forward. Plus, most parents, particularly the parents that come to therapy, they're trying. You know, maybe they made some mistakes, but, you know, they're they're giving it their best that they have. And this general assumption that parents are just walking around just trying to fuck over kids is just stupid. And occasionally you run into situations like that. But most parents are just like, you know, they're crying themselves asleep every night trying to figure out what to do. You know, maybe they weren't modeled good parenting. Maybe they're a little confused. Maybe they're struggling with their own issues. You know, but but parents are trying most of the time. You know, most parents are really trying. So when you have a kid who is acting like this, it's not because the parents weren't trying. <laughs> now, maybe the parents weren't given information well enough because we certainly don't have a society that teaches any of these sorts of things and actually teaches a lot of bad things. Um, so it, it's understandable when f- parents don't know what they're doing. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, I'm freak. I'm glad you're angry, and I'm glad you're seeing it. And um, yeah, it pisses the fuck out of me too, man. It just, it's such an injustice 
to blame parents for this sort of thing without knowing anything about the situation. You know, just be, oh, those parents, they don't know. Teachers, teachers do that. I think teachers are particularly prone to this because, because I would, I've worked closely with a lot of schools and school districts and teachers and, and I would hear them talk about parents and I'd be like, whoa, 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 I'm a family therapist. I know the other side of the story. A lot of the uh, teachers, what what's happening is they are dealing ground zero with, with a lot of kids and some very, very stressful oppositional children. You know, most of, if not all, of the oppositional, you know, the most oppositional, most problematic children go to school and a teacher has to deal with them. And so it's very stressful for a teacher, which makes sense because they have 30 kids and this one kid is just dragging them down every day. And they feel inadequate. They don't, you know, teachers feel like they should be able to control their kids' behavior, but you can't control kids like this. Like there's, you know, there's there's no way to control them. Uh, they can, they're barely in control of themselves, if at all. And so the parents, you know, the teachers are blaming themselves. They're very frustrated. They're very hurt. They're very they're overworked. They have other kids that they're concerned with, and it's just so much easier to blame the parents. It's so much easier to just be like, oh, those damn parents. Instead of being like, well, maybe I'm partially responsible for this, or maybe my district isn't allocating enough money for special needs kids, which is often the case. Um, maybe uh, I didn't. Maybe we voted not well on the last levy to, to allocate funds to um, hire another special needs um, assistant, you know, tutor at the school. Um, it's much easier just to be like, ah, the parents. It's all their fault. And, uh, yeah, I see it all the time. I could go on and on about this. But, again, um, Nicole, I'm really sorry that you're going through it. It's awful. And, yeah, pisses me off so bad. Um, yeah, people are just such assholes when it comes to this sort of thing. It, it's just so – it's uh, it just it's so unfortunate. It's abusive. It's, it's essentially like societal bullying on parents. Parent, parents of kids with special needs are being consistently bullied. Um. You know, it, just as a side note along these, we, we have a very strange culture in a lot of ways, but uh, this is one of those ways. And one, one of the things that I always point to is no one has a bumper sticker that says, I have a special needs kid, or ve- I guess very few people do. You know, very, very few people are going to have a bumper sticker that says, uh, my kid is getting D's in school, but I love him anyway. Or my kid is, uh, has a big heart. Has, my kid has a bigger heart than your kid does, but is not doing as well in school. No, we, we don't see bumper stickers like that. What do we see? We see bumper stickers of my kid's on the honor roll. My kid's going to Harvard. My kid is a firefighter. My kid got straight A's. My kid is on the dance team or my kid got first place in the spelling bee. You know, these are the sorts of things that we stand up. And why do we do that? Well, the speculation is because we developed a society over 100 years ago that was uh, controlled by those in power. And the people in power were the capitalists, um, meaning that they were, you know, rich industrial people. They were business owners. And what they wanted was a, a, t- a workforce that would produce for them and who that wouldn't talk back and also would, you know, be very efficient in their work uh, hours. Well, there's a lot of different um, ways to set up a school, but the way we set up a school back in the day was to please those capitalists, to please business, you know, corporation owners. And 
the you know it's a complicated history but you know this is you know partially true and or partially accepted by historians in this area but um essentially you know you you want people to sit down and shut up you want them to uh show allegiance to the flag because the flag is authority and you have to bow down to that because you have to be a good citizen that keeps your mouth shut you have to sit quietly. You, your individual, you know, thoughts are not important. You are a part of. You're one of many. You will stand in a line. You will, um, you will go to recess during work breaks. You know, like the, you have it, the the school day is set up just like a like a shift at a job where you work really hard for the man. And then you get to go out and play. You get a 15-minute break, and then you go back to work, and then you get a half-hour break for lunch, and then you go back to work, and then you get another 15-minute break, and then you go back to work. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a mystery why that is. You know, why are we teaching math and science and, and all those kinds of things, which are, you know, fine things, um, and we're not teaching emotional regulation. We're not teaching people how to vote. We're not teaching people how to think uh, critically. We're not teaching people how to uh, know what they want. Uh, we're teaching people math and science and, um, you know, English and writing because these are all things that corporations need us to know in order to, for them to make more money. Now, it's not a grand conspiracy. This is a well-known thing. I'm not – this isn't me, you know, talking about a flat earth or something. You know, this is this is a well-known um, historical aspect. Now, I know a lot of schools out there are not doing stuff like that. A lot of teachers are trying to shy, you know, move away from that from that kind of model. Um, you know, allowing for more independence for the kids, allowing kids to move at their own pace, allowing kids to learn about emotional regulation as opposed to, you know, how to do fractals or something. Um, so I get that. But uh, uh, so um, as a result, our culture has been influenced uh, in that way. You know, we tend to look at parenting the way that teachers look at how to control large groups of kids. You got to have structure. You got to have discipline. You got to put kids in their place. You can't really listen to them. You can't. Ha- you can't let kids do their own thing, because that's not the way society works. Well, who said that's not how society works? <laughs> like we do. You know, we set up a society where that's the case. Um, you can certainly have a society where people do their own thing, um, and and the notions. Uh, it's complicated, of course. You know, self control is important in a lot of instances. But anyway, um, I hope this makes sense in at least a little bit and if it doesn't it's at the end of a long episode and (laughs) if you're still listening uh, god bless you anyway so i will just end it there um what do you think on on the various things i so today i've talked about sadistic mothers emotional satellite dish crushes helping friends judging parents what's your experience have you ever been a grocery store vigilante have you been the victim of a grocery store vigilante Let me know. Go to the website, uh, click on the Contact Us button, and contact us and let me know what you think. All right. Please take care of yourself, and, uh, you know, thank you, patrons, for being patrons. And take care of other people because we all deserve that. (laughs) 